Welcome to NELAP Spotlight. Today I'll be speaking with Suhail Matar about his new paper, Left Posterior Temporal Cortex is Sensitive to Syntax Within Conceptually Matched Arabic Expressions. This paper was just published in the journal Scientific Reports. This work involved MEG recordings of Arabic speakers both at New York University, New York, and New York University, Abu Dhabi. Uh, and it has Suhail Matar as the first author, Julian Durrani as the second author, and me, Lena Bulkanen, and Alec Morantz as the senior authors. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Congratulations on your paper. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun to do this now since I'm catching you on your publication high. <laughs> it's not your first paper, but still always feels nice. So I told you to uh, come prepared to tell your life story. So why don't we just uh, go ahead and start with that. Um, so where were you born and raised and educated before? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so I am uh, Palestinian from the city of Haifa. Um, so that's where I was born and raised and lived until I was 25. I did my undergrads and my master's at the Technion uh, in that city in biomedical engineering. And specifically for my master's, I joined the neuroscience, um, the sorry, the neural interface engineering lab um, headed by Shai Shoham, who's actually now at NYU as well. Uh, and there we were interested in finding novel methods of stimulating neurons in the brain using optics and laser flight. So very different from what I do now. Yes, yes. It's a very unusual background. Uh, and I remember when you applied to our program, um, I think it was the case that you didn't have any background in language, right? There really wasn't any. No. Training. Yeah. yeah. So we, it, so it's sort of a miracle that we admitted you, but somehow we liked you enough to want to be uh, willing to take the risk. Um, so, so what, what exactly, at what point did you think that you might want to do language as a job or as a career, or at least for graduate school? Like what was that? Um, transition? Yeah, so I've always been very attracted to languages in general, like coming from a city where almost everyone that I knew was bilingual or trilingual uh, was definitely a factor. Um, I also went to like a, a very uh, language focused elementary school where at some point they were teaching us five different languages. Um, so yeah, I was always, always interested in foreign languages and, and, mm. and literature and, uh, and using language and ways to use language. And so after I finished my master's, I actually took a break from academia for a few years and uh, did other things, uh, all language related in a way. Like I published a book uh, of short stories and I worked as a translator and as an editor. Uh, and at some point after a couple of years, it dawned on me that like, actually language is already my passion, uh, but I was missing the uh, like intellectual stimulation that you have in academia. And I thought to myself that it would be really great if I had the opportunity to 
sort of combine my uh, formal uh, formation and my passion. And so I applied to a bunch of PhD programs and was very lucky to be accepted. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and you, you, did you apply to just psychology programs or linguistics as well? I can't remember. I, yeah, I applied to both. Like yeah, to, but it would be very hard to get into a linguistics program if you have not done any actual true. linguistics. Yeah. That doesn't really happen. But because you have that kind of engineering computational background that, you know, gives you, uh, you know, certain things will be easier in a psychology program. And so then yeah. uh, you, you can spend more time actually catching up on the language front. But I think we, you know, Alec, Marantz and I, we noticed that you uh, were, were actually an underlyingly a linguist, but you just hadn't come <laughs> out yet. <laughs> and so, uh, but I think that was very clear then. And you really integrated with the linguistics graduate students then very quickly too, yeah. in, a, in a really special way. Anyway. Yeah, I think our lab is like a, a very good, uh, uh, at a very good crossroads between linguistics and psychology. I think it's like a very unique thing. Yeah, it gives you the ingredients to uh, kind of go both ways. Um, so, so if there's any engineer out there thinking that they really would <laughs> actually study language, it is possible you can make the transition totally, um, yeah. to a PhD program, even if you haven't done anything before. Uh, uncommon, but can be done as <laughs> proven. Um, okay, so so let's talk about the paper that uh, just came out a few hours ago, um, and so so this work tackles this classic problem of trying to understand the relationship between syntactic and semantic computations in the brain, uh, so combinatory computations, so syntactic composition and semantic composition. And, uh, and that's been, you know, a hard, hard problem for a very uh, long time. Um, and it's a hard problem because language does not make it very easy for us. So mm. uh, syntactic, you know, structure building operations and semantic combinatory operations go really, really hand in hand in, in just in the linguistic stimulus. And so therefore, even if they were really clearly separate in the brain signals, it would still be hard to dissociate yeah. them. Uh, and obviously in our lab, we've approached this uh, uh, problem in various ways. But so here you took advantage of the grammatical properties of Arabic to create kind of a unique angle to that. Um, so so why, why don't you walk through that kind of basic idea? Yeah. Uh, so as you said, uh, the problem with trying to dissociate, uh, let's say, syntactic variables and semantic variables is that as soon as you try to manipulate syntactic uh, complexity, let's say, or structure, it often entails changing something about the semantics. So either changing the actual words or changing uh, words to non-words or pseudo-words. And so there is something that um, is tough about really trying to dissociate these two from each other. What, our uh, design tries to do is uh, tackle this question using Arabic, using a fully grammatical design uh, and in a minimal way, which means that we're using two word expressions, right? So we don't have a lot of buzz and whistles uh, added to that. 
in a way that might invite other confounding factors. So it's really just like two word noun adjective pairs that were compared. And so in Arabic, if I say something like chair purple, so a noun followed by an adjective, this means a purple chair and it's an indefinite phrase that has a simple syntactic structure. But then if I, so in Arabic, you can add the definite article to either the noun or the adjective. So if I say something like the chair, the purple, so I'm adding two definite articles, one before the noun and one before the adjective. This is now a definite phrase and it means the purple chair. So chair purple is a purple chair. The chair, the purple is the purple chair. Okay. And so uh, importantly, these definite articles in Arabic are written contiguously to the word. So there is no separation like in English. And lastly, we can say the chair purple. So adding one definite article only before the noun. And this now means the chair is purple, which is a full sentence. So compared to chair purple, which is sort of like the simple case, the other two conditions have more layers of information. So let's say in the sentence condition, you have tense. So the chair is purple now. Uh, in the uh, definite phrase condition, you have these definite articles that you have to house somewhere. So the idea here is that we're building the exact same concept using the exact same uh, words or concepts. Uh, and we're varying syntactic complexity. So the idea that is very simple, we just give people these uh, stimuli to read in a rapid uh, sort of serial presentation, so word after word. And we use magnetoencephalography or MEG to uh, analyze the brain data while they do this to see if there are any differences uh, on the adjective or on the noun as they're reading these sentences, these, sorry, these expressions. Yeah. And so the kind of the critical properties of Arabic that are not unique properties to Arabic, you'll find these properties in other languages as well, is that first, uh, unlike in English, uh, adjectival modification is post-nominal. So you get that sequence truck red and so that's mm -hmm. kind of your phrasal stimulus and you have a couple different ones of them uh, because they control different aspects of the of the morphology and definiteness so you have you know in simple terms truck red and then uh in arabic you don't need to express an over b in order to get the sentence so in english we could go um you know if english was post-nominal modification like Arabic, we could do truck red, but then since we have to express B overtly, we'd have to still say truck is red. But yeah. in Arabic, that's not the case. So you can create a very minimal comparison where you have truck red and then kind of another version, truck red. And one of them is just the phrase red truck, and the other one means the truck is read a full sentence which we mm -hmm. is, is then a fully tensed expressions and so therefore it uh you know if linguistic theory is correct at all should have a lot more layers in the syntactic structure so anybody who you know like if a listener is thinking about their language if it's post-nominal and does have predication in the way that you can drop the uh the b then there could be a version of this uh yeah design and definitely is, in hebrew yeah. Yeah, and Hebrew has the exact same uh, pattern, so you could do that in Hebrew. Yeah, that would be cool. 
Um, and so, so we, you know, and so the crucial thing is that the concepts stay the same. And so from that basic manipulation, we would not expect to get um, effects of conceptual combination, which is something that we've studied heavily in prior literature. Um, and the work pretty consistently implicates the left anterior temporal lobe for the kind of more semantic part of aspect of the uh, conceptual combination. But so now armed um, or going into the um, more syntactic question, um, you know, how would you summarize the hypotheses that were kind of on the table um, as you were starting this work? So what was the state of, what was the state of the art? Yeah, so a lot of work in recent years has tried to dissociate um, semantic composition, let's say from syntactic composition. Um, and the hypothesis space, uh, we can talk about hypothesis space in different domains. So in the uh, spatial domain, different regions have been implicated in syntactic processing. So most prominently, uh, the left inferior frontal cortex, uh, broadly speaking, uh, like Broca's area between quotation marks, uh, and the posterior temporal lobe is another major hub that's been gaining uh, more popularity as a possible candidate for syntactic processing. Uh, but also other regions like the angular gyrus and the anterior temporal lobe have also like been uh, to a lesser degree implicate in syntactic processing. So this was really our hypothesis space, uh, spatially speaking, mostly in the left hemisphere. Uh, though for completeness sake, we also looked at the right hemisphere but didn't really find anything there. Um, so in the time domain, our hypothesis space was less obvious because most of the studies that have looked at syntactic processing have used uh, fMRI, which doesn't really give you a very good idea of when things happen in relation to your uh, stimulus. So it's, uh, it's a much slower response uh, and you're, you're operating at a diff very different time scale. And so from the very few studies that have used more uh, time sensitive methods like MEG, uh, we could, we, we were uh, we thought we would likely find something within a few hundred milliseconds after the onset of the word. Um, so that was our hypothesis space. Like from 100 to 500 milliseconds was our uh, test window. Mm -hmm. So now let's imagine that, um, like, let's imagine that we're the subject going into the study uh, and you've done all the, you know, all the things to get them ready for the MEG recording. Um, how does the trial structure work from the subject's perspective? Um, and what was their experimental task? So this was a visual, it was a reading experiment, uh, and you needed yeah. to make sure that the subjects were actually reading and not napping. Yeah. Um, so it was actually very simple. The subjects were in the uh, MEG machine, like in the magnetic, magnetically shielded room. Uh, and they were staring at a screen on which for each trial, they saw a fixation point uh, that flashed on and then off. Then the first word came on for 300 milliseconds and then off. Then the second word went on and off. Um, and 
we had uh, six blocks in total of that. And there were four other blocks independently that had the exact same words, the exact same nouns and adjectives, but they were presented in isolation, so as single words. And this helped, helped us address different uh, issues, like making sure that any differences that we might see are not simply due to the fact that we're using definite versus indefinite words. So that was crucial. Uh, in terms of the task that the subjects had to do, after about one third of the trials, they uh, saw a sentence with blanks. And so they mentally had to fill in the words from the last trial in these blanks, and they were consecutive blanks. So let's say if they read share purple, um, the, the example trial sentence would be uh, something like John bought blank blank from the market, right? Or something like that. And so John bought a purple chair from the market. I mean, in Arabic, it's just two words, so it fits, and it's fine. So they had to decide whether the resulting sentence after you substituted the words in the blanks was both grammatical and plausible. And so if it was either ungrammatical or implausible, so it was like nonsensical, they had to press another button. Mm -hmm. And so what we achieve with this kind of task is uh, to sort of have more uniformity between the conditions because uh, one of the concerns was that, well, the chair is purple is a full sentence versus the other two conditions, uh, which were mere phrases, right? Like a purple chair or the purple chair. So you're sort of maybe expecting something else to come up. Um, and it is still kind of true, except that with our task, you're always expecting to embed this in a bigger kind of structure. So we try to mitigate this effect using this kind of task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a really nice idea for the task um, since, um, yeah, the, the critical stimulus is kind of a different size and object. And so when you kind of think through, for example, our typical picture uh, matching design, which you could have used, and I'm sure we discussed it, um, the one could, so you basically read the words and then there's a picture of a, say, a red truck and you have to do the matching. But that, uh, the naturalness of that task would be quite likely to be modulated by the, whether it's a phrasal expression or a sentence expression, like just feels a little different um, and that could throw things off. So I thought that was a, a cool idea for the, um, for the task. Um, so, so now this uh, work happened uh, at a time, or at least started at a time where uh, many of us in the field were a little bit like throwing our arms up in the air, saying that, well, you know, it actually, well, at least from my perspective, from the work that we've been doing, um, it just was very unclear whether there was anything in the brain that actually tracks syntactic structure. Um, nothing that we were seeing really had that profile. Um, and so, so, you know, I always thought it's really important to have, if you're going to tackle this question, you're going to uh, have a manipulation that just varies structure where everything else is kind of the same. There's a really, really high chance of a null result because that turns out that that's actually pretty subtle for the brain. So you have to work quite hard to see anything. So there were some safety nets in this design as well. Um, um, 
sort of aimed at being able to isolate a more semantic side of composition. And so maybe just uh, uh, briefly summarize that manipulation. Yeah. So orthogonally to the syntactic manipulation, we also were thinking of querying more the um, well now well-established uh, left anterior temporal lobe uh, semantic composition effects that uh, our group and other groups have been investigating. Uh, and what we thought of doing is again, use Arabic's property uh, properties, uh, but in a different way. So the uh, LATL effects, the semantic composition effects usually occur uh, relatively early, so around like 200 to 250 milliseconds. So it's very early after, uh, let's say, the initial uh, M100 sort of visual or sensory response, right? And so, uh, and it's, it's, it's also like precedes or is, or happens at the same time as lexical access. So like there is, there's a question of how all of this takes place. Like how can we have composition uh, this early? And so one of the hypotheses is that composition is allowed to happen early because there is some form of sensory cue that uh, allows the LATL, let's say, to uh, know that these two words are composable versus these two words are, well, we're not sure if they're composable or not. So it, it doesn't happen, right? Because the, the one of the results of the, uh, of the LATL studies is that we don't always, if you compare uh, two word expressions to a single word expression, we don't always get this effect. Like sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Uh, and so we manipulated, so we, we, in the same experiment, we manipulated the adjectives uh, morphologically. So the form of the adjectives, so the way the adjective actually looked on the screen was either uh, very adjectival or very nouny. And what I mean by that is that the adjective either had a suffix that is very indicative of this word being an adjective. And so if you have a noun and then a word that is very obviously an adjective, the brain might have an easier time composing that. Or the adjectives had a form that looked much more like a noun would. So uh, if the brain were using some sort of heuristic or shortcut, uh, and, and categorize this as like a, a first guess as a noun, it would have a much harder time composing nouns and nouns together because in Arabic it's not a thing that happens often. So this is another manipulation that we had. Uh, and a third manipulation that we had on the noun was actually uh, manipulating the conceptual specificity of the noun. So let's say for example, chair purple, so a purple chair versus throne purple. Throne. So a throne is a very highly specific form of chair. And previous studies have found that uh, manipulating the conceptual specificity of nouns in English affects to what degree uh, the anterior temporal lobe is able to compose uh, these, uh, these two word expressions. Uh, it was unclear though from previous studies whether this depended on a noun's role, whether it was like the head noun. Uh, so for example, uh, vegetable soup, 
right? I think that was uh, the stimulus in the previous study. So soup here is the head now, and vegetable is the modifier. So is it about modifying the conceptual specificity of the head or the modifier? So because nouns in Arabic uh, precede the adjectives, unlike English, uh, we were able to uh, adjudicate between whether the conceptual specificity effects are due to the noun's role or the position, if it's a first word or a second word. And why don't you tell us what happened from that manipulation kind of briefly, and then we'll focus on the syntax part. Yeah, uh, so compared to single word adjectives, when we look at the two word expressions that we have, so the noun adjective pairs, whatever the adjective looked adjectival, so actually had like a very clear uh, visual cue uh, that gave away its identity as an adjective, we saw the typical uh, LATL comp semantic composition effect. So more positivity in our uh, NEG uh, source localized data uh, compared to the single word controls. Uh, and whenever the adjectives weren't um, very obviously adjectival, so when they look more like nouns, uh, we didn't see these effects, so the effect disappeared basically. Except for one case, which we discussed in the paper, I think uh, it's better not to go too deeply into it because uh, it's a bit complex. Uh, but for a uh, subset of the adjectives that actually look like nouns, we saw a conceptual specificity effect emerge. And the direction in which that effect went was that words that were of low conceptual specificity, like chair, uh, elicited this LATL effect, but words that high, had high conceptual specificity, like throne, didn't elicit that effect. And this mirrors a pattern that we uh, saw before in, in earlier studies in English, where uh, red boat, for example, elicited composition effects in the LATL, but red canoe didn't. So boat and canoe were like our chair and throne, even though they, they were in different positions. So this suggests to us that conceptual specificity effects really are about the noun's role rather than its position in the phrase. And the, uh, the adjective typicality effect tells us that category saliency, so how obviously uh, adjectival and adjective is in our case, uh, is to some extent facilitating composition in the LATL. Mm -hmm. So basically, in some sense, the safety net worked. So even yeah. if you have no syntax findings, you would have something new to contribute to the left ATL literature uh, from Arabic and a pattern that kind of makes sense in the context uh, uh, of our prior work. So a more, you know, semantically driven pattern. Um, so let's briefly go over the statistical analysis, um, which applied across the whole study, but now focusing on the, um, on the syntactic variable. Um, and then kind of summarizing what exactly you found. So the regions of interest were kind of the usual suspects, right? So yeah. left ATL, posterior temporal cortex, LFG, 
Angular and Angular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And so then, um, yeah. So walk us through the stats. Uh, yeah. So we took our uh, MEG data. We source localized for each participant. We of course reprocessed uh, everything and cleaned it. And we source localized the data back to the cortical origin. So this gives us an estimate of uh, where the activity uh, that we measured with the MEG sensors originally came from in the cortex. And then uh, we did this for each trial. And uh, for each trial, each subject, we fit a model at each time point uh, that tries to explain the activity. And the model, we were always comparing two different models. So a reduced model that had all the variables that we weren't interested in. So in the syntactic uh, case, it was uh, the semantic variables that we had uh, introduced with frequency, time since the beginning of the experiment, and so on. And the full model had the exact same variables plus our syntactic manipulation of interest. And so we do this for every time point, and we try to find uh, clusters of uh, neighboring time points in which the addition of the syntactic variable to the model uh, significantly explains more of the data. And so we do this for every ROI, for every region of interest uh, separately. Uh, we run a uh, Monte Carlo uh, simulation uh, in order to control for the vast uh, inflation and error rate that you get from doing these uh, tests over and over again. And finally, we also correct across different ROIs. So this gives us for each ROI an indication of whether uh, within our test window there is a significant uh, effect of our factor of interest. Mm -hmm. And then the you know really interesting finding is that your bigger, better, fuller model that represents the structure only affected um, activity in one uh, region. Yes, exactly. So only in the left posterior temporal lobe did we find a significant effect of syntactic manipulation. And strikingly, we find that this happens both after the onset of the second bird, which was uh, more expected, right? So you get the first word, and then you get the second word, and they're composing together, but also after the onset of the first word, so after the now. And they're both in the same location and at the same time at around 300 milliseconds after the onset of each word. Um, but if you think about it further, it is very likely that these two different effects, even though they localize to the same area and occur around the same time, they likely reflect uh, at least partially different processes, right? Because on the first word, you only have a, an indefinite noun, so chair, or a definite noun, the chair, and you don't know yet what's going to come up necessarily. So if you get an indefinite noun, chair, in our design, the only possible continuation is an indefinite adjective. So chair is necessarily going to be followed by purple to build an indefinite phrase, so a purple chair, which is the simplest condition. Um, but the other condition, uh, the other, sorry, if you, if you encounter a definite noun, that chair, this is going to be followed by either the purple or purple. 
both of which would build a bigger structure, right? So both of these conditions are more complex syntactically. So because we're getting this effect already on the first word, and because if we compare uh, single nouns, so when the nouns are presented in isolation and we're comparing chair and the chair, we don't find any differences. These two pieces of evidence together suggest that perhaps the brain is engaging in a form of predictive processing at that point, because in the uh, two word in the, in the two word blocks, we don't know yet necessarily what's going to come up, but we know that if we get a definite noun, it's going to be a bigger structure. On uh, the second word, because we already have the full expression, it's more likely to be a to reflect uh, a more bottom up composition process where you're putting the two words together into a bigger structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at this point, obviously, you've thought a lot about the kind of two effects, but I guess if you sort of like elevating to slightly higher level, the the effect on the second word um, is very easily interpretable in a sense. Um, so that's, you know, where you can think about it in terms of some kind of a bottom up structure building. Um, and then, then you find this same effect on the first word that in them that sort of presents a question for future research, I think. So then you want to really um, formulate hypotheses about exactly what um, those uh, activities might reflect. And it is the um, very similar timing. It smells like kind of evoked activity, like there is something that's in some sense a, a regular response to a word. Um, and it's showing the structure sensitivity. Um, yeah. Yeah. And timing wise, 300 milliseconds. So, you know, we've obviously done all that M350 lexical access works. So it's not too far from that general, um, general uh, timeline. So, so yeah, lot, lots more to. Um, think about. So yeah. then you also have a, a, an additional analysis here. So one of our reviewers, I forget, reviewer two, was it reviewer yeah. two? Asked for, so good, good uh, <laughs> asked for a frequency analysis. And we should thank reviewer two. Uh, it was good to be pushed to do that um, since we really did learn something additional from that. So what did you discover from that analysis? Yeah, so reviewer two actually raised a good point, which is because we're using um, MEG in our experiment, we can go beyond the uh, temporal or spatial tests and really query the spectral domain, which you couldn't really do with the same in the same way with fMRI studies. Uh, and so they suggested that we add this manipulation, or sorry, this this analysis in the spectral domain, and so we. We targeted a very specific hypothesis based on previous literature that found that uh, beta oscillations, so uh, oscillations at around uh, 10 to 30 hertz, uh, reflect more structural processes as opposed to uh, higher band oscillations, which would reflect more uh, semantic content, perhaps. And so we specifically targeted uh, the beta band region, so around uh, 10 to 30 hertz. And we compared our uh, three different conditions, 
to see whether compared to baseline, there was any increase in energy in the beta uh, range of oscillations. Um, and we indeed found that on the second word, so on the adjective, the conditions that had more complex structures, so the definite phrases and the sentences, when compared to the simplest condition, which is the uh, indefinite phrases, there was more increase in the lower beta band range around 10 to 20 Hertz, uh, mostly after the onset of the second word of the adjective. And this was, uh, this was a, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was simple, but it was uh, a, uh, we didn't uh, go all out. We just uh, conducted the analysis on the grand average of all the sensors. So even when we, grand average over all the sensors, we see this quite big effect in, in the lower beta range, which is, which is very promising and interesting. Um, yeah, so that should provide yeah. lots of opportunities for further research. And it's actually, you know, it's nice to be able to offer like a slightly simpler result as well. And, you know, obviously the MEG field is sort of divided into frequency labs and then labs that mostly uh, analyze the uh, evoked signals. So, um, so there's still a lot of bridging work to be done. So, so it's nice to see that this manipulation, although it is subtle, it actually, you know, it can yield something pretty uh, robust in the data frequency, right? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so now that you're finished with this particular piece, uh, the what are kind of outstanding questions? for the future in your mind, or are there parts of these results that you really kind of want to try to unpack more? Yeah, um, so on the syntactic side of things, uh, sort of the hypothesis that comes up from the whole set of results is that the posterior temporal lobe is, is wearing two hats maybe at the same time. And it would be interesting to try to find ways to try to dissociate these even more and see if we can uh, uh, yeah, find more evidence for that when we directly test for this hypothesis. Uh, mm -hmm. And so as I said before, the spectral results were mostly prominent on the second word, which suggests that there might be some dissociation in the spectral domain if there isn't one in the spatial domain and the temporal domain between a more top-down process and a more bottom-up process in the uh, posterior temporal lobe when it comes to syntactic processing. So that's another avenue that would be interesting to pursue. Um, on the semantic side of things, I think it would be interesting to further investigate the interaction between uh, visual cues or sensory cues in general that, facilitate, that might facilitate uh, semantic composition and other uh, more conceptual or semantic uh, variables like we had in this in this experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. This is now, um, and these studies are not kind of follow up studies of each other, but in relatively in parallel in our lab, we've had three studies that have now yielded a spatially consistent result. So this study has this posterior temporal lobe structural fact. Ryan Law's study has that that was just published re recently where we uh, embedded 
lists either inside sentences or just longer lists. And then Graham Flick's study from last year uh, looked at actually quite similar to yours, but in English, um, uh, modifi modification versus uh, predication post-nominally in English. And so they all have this posterior temporal cortex uh, kind of structure-based effect. Um, and so, so it's kind of now it feels kind of um, compelling that there in fact is MEG signal, lo localizable MEG signal there that has the structural sensitivity. Um, and so, but for me now, like it's like the hypothesis space is still so open about what that might actually reflect. And now it's in some sense like, okay, we've sort of gotten something off the ground. And obviously it also resonates with what other groups are doing. So like William Matchin and Greg Hickok have a model where they're positing that this region yeah. is important for syntax in, uh, in comprehension, but to actually like unpack exactly uh, what it's doing, I think, is you know now, now that work can can kind of start. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think that it's it's very interesting that um, the three papers you mentioned from our lab. So we're using uh, so Arabic and English, so different languages, uh, different um, lengths of the stimuli. So mine is two words. Uh, Ryan's had these lists, and Graham had like. These, uh, these constructions, but they were embedded in much larger sentences. And so across these different scales, we still see like this sort of basic effect. That yeah, but it's yeah, not, not, some, not the same um, timing wise. And so that's something we'll, yeah. which is why we're going to start our syntax working group. So. <laughs> starting this Thursday. <laughs> so anyway, I hope, we, I hope you get to uh, celebrate tonight. Um, yeah. And congrats again, uh, and I'll see you in the working group. Yeah, thank you very much, Lena. All right, bye, Suhail. Bye. And that is a wrap from Nellab Spotlight.